Okay, so dress dowdy. Welcome to Groovy Movies. My name is Lily Austin. And my name's James Brailsford. Hello. Hey, James. How are you? Uh, not too bad, Lily. Not too bad. Quite looking forward to today's podcast, though. So, uh, something uh, I've always been meaning to explore a little further. And finally, through the uh, the joys of our podcast, getting uh, an opportunity to look into the, the work of this particular person in a little bit more detail. Yeah. So let me, let me do the big reveal. This week, we are talking about the most influential costume designer in Hollywood's history, Edith Head. And if you've ever seen The Incredibles, they based Edna Mode, the Incredibles costume designer. Yeah. Uh, it was like an in-joker reference on Edith Head. Yes, yeah. She kind of has the same bobbed fringe and glasses. And the glasses, yeah. Yeah, Edith, she has a really, I love her, her look is very distinctive. Quite this quite severe short bob and then these dark glasses and she's always in a tailored suit or skirt suit or tailored dress. She she definitely knew the power of like personal branding, you know. Oh, it's very did. clear. Like I was watching a lot of uh, YouTube videos and you know stuff to background research. This is like, yep, she's always turns out exactly in that style. You you know you you know the moment you see her, it's Edith Head, and 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 she keeps keep kept it up all through her career. By the looks of it, I was watching some interviews with her in the seventies compared to in the sixties yeah. and the fifties. You know, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Before personal branding was a was a typical thing, she was all over. It. Like everyone, we don't really, yeah. her name isn't in the kind of popular pop culture these days so much. But at the time, everyone, she was so part of general pop culture because she really branded herself and put herself out there, right? Yeah, I, I really do think so. I, th I think you're quite right. It, it was probably hard for us to imagine, but I suspect that she was like as talked about, or no, maybe not as talked about, but I suspect she was in the public consciousness as much as maybe Alfred Hitchcock was or a mm. star at the time was. So when you saw that name come up on the screen, you kind of knew you were seeing uh, an A-lister. Yeah. So she worked on over 1,000 films during her career. She was like <laughs> intensely <laughs> prolific. It's insane. <laughs> and she was the designer behind the costumes for in the in Hollywood's golden age like all the she worked with Paramount but was often loaned out to other studios so she was the one behind all of the incredible costumes of all those major films at a time when the film world was at its most powerful and its most influential yeah I mean like, it was interesting to kind of research this and just to suddenly realize you know she was a, a part of the studio system mm. during its com basically during its its history during its height and she also rode out its decline as yes. well so she was she she was an influential part of this big you know when the film industry was at its most um like it's most factory like really mm. like um i was trying to get some figures and they say during the studio system era this uh, hollywood specifically hollywood was putting out on average 500 new films each year oh my god it's crazy yeah so uh, you know she she was a she got into that system and not only did she get into it she became probably the most recognized figure um, in the costume department uh, during that time yeah so much so that the costume design award at the academy awards that was brought in basically for edith head they wanted to recognize really i didn't talent. know that yeah 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 it was basically because of her that they decided to bring it in so they brought it and in. then she won it loads she won it yes and they'll say that when they brought it in it was still when technicolor was first becoming used more and more so still half of films were like black and white so there was two, there were two costume design awards every year one for black and ah. white film one for color so for many many years she won both but she so she was nominated 35 times and she won eight so she's the the woman with the most oscars in oscar history which is incredible uh, you know i mean 35 noms eight wins that's yeah that's not that's not fluke that's not luck that's not timing or fads you know she she and that's throughout her career she was winning oscars so yeah i mean an amazing talent but actually what you're saying about the studio system actually i think it does speak to that a little bit this fact she was the top of the tree yeah. she had the resources to be that person who's constantly like working on all the big films and kind of has has the resources to make such incredible costumes 
Absolutely, because because that was the other thing. As I was doing research, uh, I watched a documentary, and it had a like you know, it was a talking head documentary, so it had people from Hollywood's history, and it was it was concentrating on Edith Head's career, and it had an interview with a woman who I think it said she was the head of department for custom made costumes western division so it's like right paramount had a custom made costume department just for the western films that they made i was like i can't imagine that kind of scale it really blew my mind as to how big the studio system was yeah absolutely yeah we'll definitely get get onto that a bit more but to start us off shall we give a little rundown of her backstory oh yes please yeah (laughs) so edith head she was born in california in 1897 and She actually got a degree, a BA in letters and sciences. I don't quite know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Hello, I'll read the post. I have a degree. I'm like, is it letter writing or is it something to do with individual symbols? I don't know. I mean, let's let's go with it. It's probably probably it's probably like literature or something, is it? I honestly have no idea. I have no idea. But she then went on to do an MA in Romance Languages from Stanford. So she. She was an incredibly studious, clearly academic person. And, and, then, and then that era, a woman doing that is pretty unusual. But her background then isn't really in, in fashion at all. I'm, I'm not getting fashion des- I mean, I'm not getting fashion designer vibes so far. No, no. And um, fr- from the little bits of researching that I did, I understand she was doing that and she noticed there was a job advertised at Paramount um, mm-hmm. for a sketch artist, like a junior entry-level position. So she borrowed the best-looking sketches from all of those students. Yeah, and took them along to the interview. And uh, when she had to draw her first actual thing, it became immediately clear to everybody, including the guy who'd interviewed her, that she didn't actually draw those pictures. But he was so <laughs> impressed by her that she, rather than getting fired, he actually taught her his style of drawing, and so he trained her up. Right, 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 right. Love that. And so from there, she was working on costume designs for silent films and then kind of worked her way up to become the head designer of Paramount Pictures from 1938 <laughs> until 1967. And then oh, in 1967, at the age of 70, she left Paramount Pictures and went to Universal So she and worked there until her death in 1981. So completely committed. She did not stop. She never stopped. She never stopped. <laughs> and she won her lo- last Oscar in 73. She's pretty impressive, right? So she would have been 76 when she got the uh, the Oscar for her work on The Sting. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, an incredible career, an incredible sustained career. And, you know, and, you know, most people in the film industry, I think in most industries, they'll have this golden period. And then, you know, maybe the last decade or so, I mean, like Alfred Hitchcock's a classic case, his later films aren't considered his classic period. Whereas mm. Edith had still to win an Oscar towards the end of her career. That's It's, it's amazing that she kept the quality of her work uh, consistent throughout the years. Yeah, totally. All right, so... To warm us up for our chat about some of our favorite Edith Head films, I thought I would pick <laughs> out a few of her most iconic designs, and <laughs> and I wanted James, my fashion Easter, to describe them in his own words. No problem at all, Lily. Happy to help. Buckle up because because <laughs> you know my comfort zone is definitely the uh, the nuts and bolts of like the technical aspects of filmmaking. But when we get into costume, I'm I'm definitely like out of my comfort zone as far as having the correct uh, the correct ability to um describe what i'm seeing so well, let's give it a go then <laughs> let's give it a go okay would you like to set me up yes yeah, so the first pick i chose was of ginger rogers in the 1944 film lady in the dark so can you describe this look oh, to me james um oh, we've got two images here do you want the maybe start with the color one because it's a bit more clear that's why i went for that but i just wanted to to show you the full ensemble with the black and white okay so um, <laughs> well, she's definitely wearing uh, stockings and uh, red shoes. Is she? She's starting the two things in it. Red, red stiletto shoes, burgundy stiletto shoes. I can't see stockings. Oh, I think it's mine's a bit pixelated. You, are you seeing oh. a fishnet? <laughs> I've seen a fishnet. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay, sorry. Carry on, carry on. I won't interrupt. I won't interrupt. Keep going. <laughs> I'm just warming myself up. Yes, you're starting uh, from the bottom. I like that. (laughs) 
Right, she's well, well, uh, and she's got um, a patterned outfit on. I think it's a separate uh, skirt that seems <laughs> to be fur lined on one side and then patterned on the inside, and um, it's going to a bodice with a plunging neckline. Uh, is nice. that right? Nice, yeah, plunging good, neckline. good use uh, of that term. What colour? <laughs> It's either red or burgundy. It's on the burgundy end of red. Uh, that's what I'd say, if that even exists. <laughs> Help. Okay. Help, uh, I'm uh, drowning. No, no, you haven't? No, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> you're doing great, sweetie. Um, so what about on the, the right picture, the black and white picture? Right. So, a, again, a hell of a lot of fur is the first thing I'm seeing, like a, like a waistcoat and then like a bodice inside again plunging le- neckline but this time it's not as it's not a skirt it's a dress that she's wearing so the dress kind of segues from being what looks like sequins <laughs> on the top half to around the waist it goes to fur okay my love the, these are pictures of the same look it's just that one's with the the, the jacket and stole so it's the same thing I, 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 <laughs> I don't even know what a stole is, but oh, it's a, the same thing, right? I yeah, see. yeah, yeah. So I yeah. just wanted to show you the full f- third look because basically well, this is a very, this, oh, right. at the time, caused a bit of a stir, this look, because it was the most expensive outfit that had ever been designed for a film before. I believe it was $35,000, which in 1944, wow. you know, there's a lot of money. And this is obviously, you know, we're still in the war at this point, so... It was a huge kind of contrast yeah. to what was going on in the in the real world, but there was a bit of a stare about it. But I think on the whole, audiences quite appreciated that that kind of escapism. Yeah, I think they clamped down on it soon after that about how in films they had to ration their clothing. Basically, they couldn't show such opulence. I think right. Yeah, I can believe it. And so the skirt on the outside is made of mink, mink fur, right. hence the expense. And then it's got this matching jacket, crop jacket. And a stole is like a big fur scarf, basically. <laughs> Very... uh, is that is that what's like hanging hanging off her hand as she's got it against the door? Exactly, exactly. And then right, on the I'm inside, sorry, yeah. it's all embellished red hand stitch beading. So wow, I'm assuming it must have been shot in Technicolor because otherwise, what a waste of this ruby red, right? Well, yes, actually, Edith Head was famous for doing using a lot of bright color, even for black and white films. She didn't care that. It's she's still. Oh, wanted really? That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, this one was Technicolor. I mean, I wonder if part of that as well is she wanted the uh, actors to feel glamorous in them, regardless of if it was black yeah, and white or not. Totally. Because you know, it's all about characterization. We'll talk about this more as we go on. Yeah. But her, the most important thing for her was that the actors felt their character and the and it felt the costume felt true to the character. So yeah, it wouldn't have mattered that it was being fil- shot in black and white. Yeah, sure. So are we moving on to picture number two now? Yes, yes. Let's move on. So uh, this uh, is Veronica <laughs> Lake in This Gun for Hire from 1942. Right. So, I mean, first impression, a little bit kinky. Come on, Edith. <laughs> anyway, um, so is it, I mean, it's 42, so it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it looks a little PVC, but I don't think PVC was invented. So maybe leather. Um, mm-hmm. So she's where it's like... Um, Top to tail, um, she's got like black l- leggings, although it looks like the leggings, they're not leggings, black trousers that go into very, very high boots. Not boots, mm-hmm. she's very, yeah, um, yeah. But, but boots, like, but it's all black I'm looking at, by the way. Everything's black. And like I say, so I'm going to go with black leather and really high up to the top of the legs, the waist boots, another plunging neckline and a black sailor's hat on her head oh is she in a sailor's gear is it, oh my god is she wearing waders is that meant to, is this meant to, what the what is it i i've it's a great image by the way just because i out of context i have no idea what's going on in this film i chose this one because i thought it would be fun to show that edith head despite being famous for being quite critical of how women dress and having this attitude of you should cover yourself up don't show too much don't be too showy when it came to making costumes for characters, Hollywood always called for sexy characters. So she would always, yep. she, despite her own personal feelings about how women should dress in the real world, in the fancy world of film, she was very happy to create a bit more of a risque <laughs> image because this is the look that solidified Veronica Lake's reputation as being a sex symbol because you're quite right. She's all in black, super tight. It's actually the boots are vinyl ah. and you're right there. They go up to her thighs and then she's in a satin shirt. Oh, it's, but satin. it's amazing, right? Because this was during the Hayes Code. It got away with it. 
Oh, it was, wasn't it? You're right. God, blimey. Because that, that, that's what I love about like the films that were made during the code, which was very restrictive, like former censorship. It's like, how could, how much did they get away with? They got away with that. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, that look you it, could but, wear um, now and, and it would cause a stir at a party. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Okay, so those are two pictures from Edith Head's kind of golden age glamorous heyday i would say this is like reflecting the high point of costume being used for fantasy performances and they're very camp quite over the top very sexy or provocative in some way but there's an interesting i think shift as her years go on and her career moves on and the film starts to change um because the films that we looked at today that we wanted to talk about they all go a little bit more a slightly more realistic but still super super stylish so on that note shall we discuss Harry Grant and Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief? Yes please uh, this is my first time watching this film I've seen a lot of Hitchcock and I've seen a lot of Cary Grant films but mm. uh, for some reason I'm not sure why maybe I and I could, having watched it I can understand in my mind I can understand why maybe it's not talked about as often as his other films it's, it just seems from his kind of classic period this perhaps is a slightly lesser film I, I watched it and I, I had a good time but there was just there was just a lot of things that were just I, I can see why it's, it's not as good as his other stuff the story is like bonkers right it's like quite terrible <laughs> really like, I was like I'm, I don't know if I'm yeah. just being stupid but I was like this doesn't really make any that sense whatsoever but in that and, and, way, yeah, but, but it kind of is the wardrobe is what you come for, I think, because of that. I have to say the one thing that, that um, the, the three L films we watched, two of them have definitely got stuff that dates them, makes them a bit problematic, makes them a weird viewing for modern audience. But the one thing that you cannot absolutely d deny is that you can come for the costumes and have a great time and they're they are yeah. so well executed so well done they are you know they're either timeless or they're so classy and stylish that they're worth you know they make worth watching those films uh, you know so uh, yeah, so here we are carrying around We've, we've got three frames from uh, To Catch a Thief. And uh, when I saw this uh, particular scene, I was my, my jaw hit the floor because it was it's like watching um, a fashion show. Like Grace Kelly comes out in uh, yeah. like a black, um, I guess a, not a really little black dress, but a black dress from head to toe. And surrounding her waist is, it seems like linen white material that mm -hmm. uh, is kind of tied on. Uh, so it's like forming an overskirt. And then she's got this white, uh, I don't know what kind of hat, like a sun <laughs> hat. I don't know. But but uh, yeah, so so we've got this contrast of black and white. And then stood next to her is Cary Grant, who's in a buttoned up suit. I don't really know quite what to say about Cary Grant. And the other thing I've noticed as well is like, you can have much more fun with women's fashions in these films. Guys kind of have to stay in suits, but you know, ain't knocking that suit. It all looks great. So help me out, Lily. <laughs> what am I seeing? Well, I, cho I chose this one to talk about because it is the most unusual and the most sort of fashion-y of the dresses that Grace mm. Kelly wears in this film. She's in a lot of yeah. really beautiful 50s full skirted dresses throughout the film in like gorgeous colors but this one is a little bit more directional because it's a high necked halter dress like black dress you're quite right and as you said with this white long linen skirt so you've got these she's basically wearing two different skirt styles at once one is like very fitted pencil skirt and then on top of this is kind of flowing a-line skirt and then Echoing that, she's got this white visor of the same kind of linen fabric over a black headscarf. You have to see oh, it to really- Oh, yeah, I didn't spot the headscarf. Yeah, it's it's quite wild. I've never quite seen anything like it, so I was really struck by it. And with this cute little matching bag. But I have to say, with oh, yeah. Cary Grant, his costume, you're right, like men in general are not quite as exciting to look at. There's no denying it, especially in this era. But Cary Grant's costume in this film, I don't think he's ever looked better the crucial part of his character is that he hasn't been in America for a long time. And that's something that Grace Kelly can pick up on from his way of being. But it's also very much reflected in his clothes because they are a little bit oh, more yeah. fashion forward than most men would have worn at that time. He wears like a striped Breton t-shirt in the opening scene. At some point he has this little waistcoat on. 
It's yeah. I love it. I, I love his stri- I love it. I love his striped shirt. And is, is it like a little red scarf? Yeah, he's got as yeah. Well? He wears a lot of scarves because he's like he's a cat burglar. So obviously, stripy top has got the uh, the association with burglar yeah. with his swag bag. You know, but, but yeah, but also yeah, touching on a kind of French. There's there's a nice yeah. mix there, isn't it? Because it like echoes that, but then also speaks to the fact that he's living on the Riviera. It's it perfectly yeah. captures his character. Well, th- this is the thing because reading about um, Edith Head, like you. you mentioned earlier that that character is central to everything she does but also i noticed she says storytelling that mm. she reads a script and she wants and i have to say lily so i kept the kind of i didn't really go more for character i went more for how are these clothes telling the story and yeah in all of the films we watched it's impeccable the use of um costume and styling to tell the emotional journey or where we are in the story you know you can pinpoint certain reasons so i mean this exactly. moment here this is what you want grace kelly to come out looking like a fashion model you know you you wanted to have this moment because he's been kind of he's being captivated by her is that at this point in the story this kind of costume is perfectly judged yeah, that's exactly it. And and Edith Head was very clear about that, right? She d- didn't like being described as a fashion designer or being anyway led by fashion because for her, she said, what I do is I receive a script, I read the script, then I design to, re- to reflect what's happening in the script and the characters that I'm dressing. It's not about trying to create stylish looks, you know, for the sake of it. It has to always be character led and storytelling led, like you said. And, and I imagine that's why she was so in demand and I imagine that's why she worked on so many films because um, I was reading about her contemporaries and uh, I think when she was starting out, they were, her contemporaries were all men mm-hmm. and yeah. they definitely had, they had more signature styles and the things that they were interested in, they were putting into their costumes. So it yeah. wasn't really being led by the story or the character. And, and I, I do think like... Every, I didn't know much about Edith Head background. I just remember when I watched a lot of films when I was younger that her name would come up again and again and again. And I always remember thinking, every time I see an Edith Head credit, I'm never disappointed with uh, the costumes uh, in the films because she's impeccably tasteful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. There is something about her style being that she doesn't really have a personal style. There is something quite classic. Like it's true that there... The, the dress isn't too directional, even though I did pick one, which is probably the most fashion-y of, of the looks in that particular, in To Catch a Thief. But in general, she tends to go for things, shapes that are a bit more classic and doesn't date the film. But it's very much about whatever is happening in the story. She doesn't want it to be about her and her own style. But also the other thing Absolutely. I would say while we're talking about Grace Kelly's film is that Grace Kelly was um, was one of Edith Head's favorite actors to work with, and this was, I think, one of the major reasons why she became so so prolific was because actors loved to work with her because she f- focused on the on the pe- person and the character that the actor was trying to create. They loved working with her because she would also be very collaborative and get them involved. Like, what, what do you think this person would wear? How would you dress if you, you know, what do you think? And so they would trust her yeah. and would always want her, you know, actresses were always requesting her to come on their films, even if it wasn't a Paramount film. They were constantly having to loan her out because everyone wanted to work with her. Exactly. That's how you get a thousand credits under your belt is, is you become someone who everyone wants to work with. And like the fact that she was loaned out so often speaks volumes because, yeah. you know, act, you know if, if you've impressed an A-list actress, they're going to request you and they've got the clout to get you on hire. And yeah. another thing that watching, watching these films, Lily, that um, actually I hadn't really considered before. And I think this film, Catch a Thief, out of the three that we've watched, perhaps more so than the rest, it, it's... You know, times have changed, and this is very much uh, a product to Catch a Thief when um, film stars were definitely, without any doubt, the influencers, as we would call them now, of their yeah, time. Totally. And also trendsetters. That, 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 that I didn't re- quite fully appreciate the link between how uh, Paris and Hollywood and how Hollywood was essentially setting the trend. So you would go to the cinema, you would see these kind of costumes. This was like the 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 fashion show, I guess, for for most people. This is where they were exposed to new ideas in costume and film. And that doesn't happen anymore at all. I, 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 do, I don't get the impression that Hollywood's setting any kind of fashion trends much these days, whereas very, this, very this feels like the, the height of those times. Yeah. You're, you're so right. And this links perfectly with Breakfast at Tiffany's and our discussion before about Ooh. Givenchy because though her films, they were totally influential, like you said, and Breakfast at Tiffany's had a, had a very iconic 
more than many other films actually it was like pegged as like setting the tone for style for like the years that followed and it's interesting because this is a film that is set it's a contemporary setting you know it was the story was set in the time it was made and there's an interesting um element of dressing up like the look the dresses that she's famous for wearing all the different little black dresses with the big jewels and like and and headdresses and stuff the whole point of her character right of uh, holly golightly's character is that she is kind of a lost soul who is like a little girl playing dress up trying to pretend to be this character that she's she's putting out there in order to kind of make make a living basically so it was like very so that was like an important part of the story for her whereas there are these other moments when such as the scene where she's singing moon river when it's meant to kind of capture her when she's in a down moment when she's just being herself and she's dressed yeah in a more low-key way um but as you pointed out yeah. james edith had actually only designed those low-key moments and it was Givenchy who did the costumes for the, the who did design the dresses that she wears yeah, that that was again interesting to to read into to realise that actually it wasn't a hundred percent Edith Head. But I have to say, it's, it's not as if watching uh, the film that you are snapped out of. Oh, this is a different designer. And in fact, I, th- I think almost having two different designers working on the film means that Givenchy's um, designs do add that like fantasy glamour. And then yes, exactly. um, when she's pre- when she's presented more as her real self, let's say, like off duty or just exposing the fact that she's not this glamorous kind of socialite figure that she's presented as, that, that um, they have a different quality. They're not, you know, it's not like Givenchy blows Edith's head's work out of the water, but I think that it just works to the strength of the film that you get these two different characters of Holly Golightly. Exactly. But it was actually, and it was those, these looks, like the the picture I put in our, in our shared dog of her on the windowsill with her hair up in this little towel and a sweater and, a, and slacks. That was a look that like, all the girls began wearing like everyone loved this like low-key chic look and it is funny because she's obviously meant to be kind of a, a dress down moment because she's got a towel in her hair but her hair is perfect you know it's like a perfect little yeah. updo but if i can give you a bit of goss about Givenchy and edith head's relationship please <laughs> you you, te- you teased this to me earlier i was like oh this is great goss i have no idea what this is please give it give it <laughs> so Givenchy's relationship with Audrey Hepburn began on the film Sabrina because this was one of Audrey Hepburn's first film. It was kind of her breakout role. This is kind of a ugly duckling, like blossoming makeover kind of story, mm. right? And so yeah. part of it is that she transforms from kind of a low-key young girl into a woman. And they wanted her to wear French styles of beautiful dresses when she makes that transformation, but they couldn't afford on their budget to hire a designer to do those dresses and they didn't want they didn't want Edith Head because they're like no no it has to be a French designer we need the real thing people will be able to tell uh. they basically dissed <laughs> Edith and so what the uh, they decided to do was to send Audrey to Paris as a kind of private person and 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 booked for her to have an appointment with Givenchy himself because doing that oh, would wow. be way cheaper than like doing it as part of the studio they basically you know just yeah, gave yeah. her a bit of money and she was doing it as as a p- private person and it was actually Audrey who collaborated with Givenchy she was given a list of what to get and she completely ignored it and her and Givenchy came up with the designs for the dress on their own and that is a very iconic if you've seen Sabrina this is a very p- crucial part of the film and it led to Edith Head being given an Oscar for Sabrina despite the oh, fact that she right. only did just like in Brexit Tiffany's she only did the costume for like the non black tie cocktail looks and when Edith had got the Oscar she didn't mention Givenchy at all she never did she just took it and was like great thanks <laughs> and I so I was shocked to see that this happened again on Brexit Tiffany's because from then on Givenchy worked with Audrey Hepburn on most of her films Sherrod mm. as well you know any film where she looked stylish and then we got Paul Edith ah. Head doing the doing the less exciting ones. <laughs> well, it's the less exciting ones that I would like to highlight, Lily, or chat through with you. Like yeah. going to this um story the storytelling um aspect because um t- towards the end of Breakfast Tiffany's, like in a lot of these films, uh, things don't go so well for our titular Holly Girl Lightly. Um and <laughs> she kind of has a bit of a breakdown when she finds out her brother's died. And so 
then yeah. there's like the most self-inserted character I've ever I've ever read in in, in a scene in a screenplay where George Peppard plays like uh, a writer character basically. And yeah, um, you know, know. He's, he's a nice guy, but it's like it's the classic case of like, oh, he is an interesting, complex, rounded uh, female character. Let's let what she needs is a regular guy and just to calm down. But a um, simple man, a simple man. Yeah. And, um, so George Peppard, he kind of goes to see her after she's had a breakdown, and. Um, for the first time in the film, she's wearing like muted colours. And I noticed for the first time in the film, George Peppard's in the best suit he's been in. He's, he's always in suits of some degree. Yes. So like I, I was like, oh yes, what they've done there is they've 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 brought his style level up a bit, brought her kind of style level, not not she doesn't look she looks stylish as hell, but like the colours are muted. Mm. It's it's mm-hmm. much and I was like, that's bloody storytelling with the costume. And I don't know. It was just Absolutely. I, I saw it there. Yeah, yeah, and that is definitely Edith Head's skill, which is you wouldn't even, unless you were really looking for it, you wouldn't even notice. But that's the point, yeah. right? That is good costuming when you don't really notice. You appreciate Absolutely. that they look chic, but you don't really, pick, you pick up unconsciously on those cues without really being aware of it, which actually perfectly takes, takes us on to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Because I really want to talk about that because, again, it's a little bit different to the iconic, big, camp, glamorous like showgirl dresses that she often did in the 40s to a more low-key um naturalistic kind of style yeah watching this i you know you, you i completely agree this is the i think this is the most unobtrusive of the three films as far as costuming goes they're yeah. like they they it, it doesn't draw attention and that in itself is a skill just to be clear this is not saying this is any lesser of her work it's just that out of the other films the the costumes are very much foregrounded but in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid they're taking a little back seat they just mm. don't get in the way I mean what I, what I do think they're amazing at I mean it's shot by my favourite cinematographer of all time Conrad L. Hall and the costumes and the cinematography just blend in there's this muted yeah. like brown colour palette and like it just it, the whole whole thing like i would say out of the three films breakfast at tiffany's and to catch a thief have certain things about them that feel dated that to modern audiences perhaps like a bit jarring like bring out the story this film i was like oh this is nice to see an edith head film where the costume is just one part of a film where there's nothing really bad about it, it just all works toasty so this was a film made in 1969, directed by George Roy Hill, but it was set in 1899. And I think what's really interesting about it is Robert Redford and Paul Newman, the two like titular stars, they're styled in a way that looks very much kind of the century, early of 20th century. But then there are these little details that are contemporary. Oh, so like the cut of their me, trousers was the fashionable cut in the 60s. And like these shirts that they wear are actually the kind of shirt you would wear in the 60s and it's still like what the kind of thing you would wear now like they they lost the stuff that makes it very very victorian vibes right. but keeps the stuff like the cowboy notes the hats like the bigger elements are kept but then the rest is made contemporary and that very subtle blend i think is what contributes to making it feel like you're right not super dated there's just something about mm. not not making it so costumey that it feels like a costume you know because you're it's like yeah. so period you know yeah absolutely and it's interesting having you discuss that because i was i was watching it thinking i don't know enough about fashions to think are there any clearly late 60s 70s things in there but in fact this still that you've chosen it's quite interesting because the paul newman shirt it, it does in this particular still i'm like oh that exactly. does seem quite noticeably contemporary but you know yeah. when you watch the film it is you know you I mean, I think they're posing for a production still there, but yeah, it's 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 seamlessly done. Not nothing. Watching that film again. I mean, have you, had you seen the film before? No, I hadn't. I hadn't seen it. I was so excited to watch it, and it was so good. It's such a brilliant film. Like you're right. Yeah. Like, shockingly contemporary feeling. Like it doesn't feel like, right? like I mean, an old it, movie. It's even got a thruple in it. I know. Sake, I mean. <laughs> I was here for the thruple. I was shook. I couldn't believe that. That was amazing. That the banging like... track by Burt Bacharach, you know, <laughs> yeah. composed for it. it it's, it's a great time. I like every so time. When I first saw it, it was a film that suffered from the weight of everyone saying it's a classic. So that's always a problem seeing a film that you hear as a classic. The weight of expectations too high. But every time I've seen it since, and especially this time, I was like, oh, this is just a great film. Really exciting, a really great, solid script. You know, it's William Goldman, you know, it, it's it's referred to as like 
perhaps the the best Hollywood script ever written as far as just it ticks all the boxes, it does all the things it's meant to do, and it doesn't really fuck anything up at any point. Absolutely, absolutely. And just one final note to 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 again talk about characterization. Edith had skill with that. Mm. It doesn't really this yeah. this particular still that I I picked for our shared dog doesn't quite convey it the best. But throughout the film, if you watch it, you'll see that whereas Paul Newman's character wears a lot of lighter colors, lighter colored shirts and like beiges and stuff. Uh, Robert Redford is in a lot of darker colors, dark shirts, dark grays, which reflects their past different personalities, right? Because Robert Redford's character is a lot more darker mm. and negative and Paul Newman is kind of slightly naive and lighter, you know? So again, yeah. even oh, though yeah. you don't really notice their costumes, like you said, they blend very well into the terrain that they're in. There are these subtle differences that differentiate them, their two personalities and characters. Yeah, because the, the blue that Paul Newman's wearing, as I'm looking now, it just gives him a little bit of a, I don't know, a slightly preppy, like, I don't know, there's just a bit, bit more university. Yeah. I don't know quite why I'm thinking these things, whereas you, um, Robert Redford's character, who is much more monosyllabic, he leaves the talking to uh, to Butch. Yeah, yeah, I, I hadn't even spotted that, but um, yeah, what it's masterfully done by Edith Head, I have to say. Absolutely. So as we mentioned before, Edith Head not only was a prolific costume designer, but she was also basically an influencer of her age. And she really put her brand out there. She created her own line in later years that she touted around America, apparently like traveling with it, putting on fashion shows. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she also was a, <laughs> a frequent columnist. She was often quoted in columns and newspapers, giving out her advice to women on how to dress well. And also, released two books doing the same <laughs> so james was the one who said to me oh my god i'm definitely going to read how to dress for success <laughs> so i got it as well and then my ebay deliveries just disappeared so <laughs> I, i've been scrabbling around online i've just started reading today so i'm annoyed because it's it's what little i've read of it is just cracking yeah so i thought given given that i should do a little quiz with james to see what he's learned so far and <laughs> because this is this book is her advice is iconic. It's called How to Dress for Success, but actually it's not just about what you to, what to wear. It's, uh -uh. it's lifestyle advice for the working woman in the, it was published in 1967. And honestly, I could, I would have guessed it came from the 30s or some of her advice. But it was great. <laughs> I was reading the section on how to, how to get a man when I was on the, on the oh. tube yesterday and was like, oh God, <laughs> please don't look at what I'm reading. <laughs> so, let me get up my questions. Oh, you you've prepared questions, Lily. Okay. Just a few just a few questions to to test what you've learned about Edith in our in our research and also I guess to whet okay. people's appetite for this book because I would recommend it. Yeah, I like it. I've only literally just started leafing through it. I managed to find it online and it's 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 very yeah, it's very entertaining. Okay. So, we will begin with dressing for work. So, James, Ooh. what, according to Edith Head, will happen if a job applicant dresses too elegantly? Oh, they will be, um, I imagine, they'll, if too elegant, you may be thought of as you might be above the job that you're applying for and you might not be fully committed to grafting. Ooh, nice. That's actually, I'm going to give you a point for that because she does say something along those lines earlier in the book. Um, but what I was really drawn to was <laughs> where she cautioned that you won't get hired if you if you dress too elegantly. And she quoted a hiring manager, I suspect a male oh, hiring references. manager, who says, I felt anyone that looked that, that attractive would have a date every night in the week and would never be free to stay <laughs> until 5.15 in an emergency. <laughs> this guy... I was referring to not hiring. 515. And he's he was he, this was a woman who came to a job interview looking really gorgeous. <laughs> and he didn't give her the job because there's no one that no way that someone that attractive would, could stay later than five. <laughs> right. God. Okay. So dress dowdy is what Dr we're going dress for. Dress dowdy. Okay. And I mean, it just made me like long for the days when you would finish work before 5.15. Imagine only stay till 5.15 in an emergency. Oh my God. I mean, Jesus, those were the days. Okay. So, okay, right. Okay. So one point. Thank you for the wild time. I appreciate <laughs> that. So what, 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 what? Okay. What next? So now we'll move on to how to get a man. 
This is very, very relevant oh. to your life, James. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Okay, so what is the first step to finding a husband? Oh, the first step is, mm, well, you... To find a husband, you need to find a man, or am I being? I'm a cutting hairs here. You need to tr- you need to find some first step. Is I don't think this. To be honest with you, I don't think this applies. Oh, wait, the, to, to to finding a wife. This is only for finding a husband. Uh, I mean, the first, what step one is? You maybe it's well. I guess the book's about styling, so maybe it's um, style in the way appropriate to attract the kind of man you're after. That's actually such a good answer because she does talk about that. But the first step is that's probably step two. The first one is oh. be realistic. And pick a goal you can reach. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, wait, no, you know, yeah, no. I think I did read a little bit of this bit, so I should have got the goddamn answer. She says stuff like, you know, if you're gonna, don't go chasing like after celebrities because if you did manage to get a cele- or a famous person, because if you did manage to get them, you'd constantly be having to keep up with the competition. Yes, that was the bit. Yes, there's going to be loads of competition. <laughs> she really makes out like. It's like a constant kind of elbow fight with other women trying to get at the, all these amazing eligible men who who don't want to get married. So you've got to lure them in. <laughs> Put some sweets on the floor, box propped up on a stick, pull the stick with a string. <laughs> got him. Got me that husband. <laughs> so next question. What is the best place to meet a man? Uh, now, now I... I, I I'd like to say that I knew the answer to this. I did actually read this bit because it was amazing. But the best place to meet a man, it's like you've got to go to places where men may congregate en masse. So, you know, you can, you've got like a fish shooting fish in a barrel scenario. You go to a convention and you should choose a convention. A convention hotel, yes. <laughs> got a convention hotel, which is really like no, based around the, the profession of the kind of guy you want to go for. So if you want a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber, you go to a convention that is based specifically for that uh, profession. So I just wonder, Lily, like, it makes me wonder, in the 60s, do you think there were women who'd read this book and they're like, right, come on, ladies, we're having a weekend, we're going to the convention center to find well, a husband? Well, you know what? It's actually not terrible advice because, look, if you if you want to meet someone in IRL, like you know, you go to a bar. It's also a place where people congregate. You know, it's not it's not such a wild in the kind of gen in the broader sense. It's not such a bad piece of advice. It's just the term convention hotel is like the least sexiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and people will be like tired and grumpy from going to these boring meetings and like having rubbish hotel food. It's like not the place to pick someone up, surely. Yeah, and, and also it's like, it, 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 you just think, so you're going there, uh, you're going there, let's say you've chosen postman, you're going to a postman's convention, so you've <laughs> chosen them for the, you've chosen that because that's the career that you want your husband to have, and now you're going there and you're going for the, to looking for the kind of husband that you are physically attracted to, so you, both of these things have circumvented anything to do with personality or compatibility, but you might find yourself an attractive postman out of your dreams. Well, look, James, there are no conventions for nice, funny men. You can't really. <laughs> You got comedian, really, stand up, stand up comedian. There, well, I, I don't want to be cast aspersions, so I'll say no more. But I don't, I don't know about Ooh. that. <laughs> mm, story. Anyway, that? that that's beside the point. Let's go back to Edith. So yeah, so one point for that. Good job, James. And oh, then my last you. question from the how to get a man section: What are the five types of man that Edith Head defines? Oh my god! Now this, I definitely have no idea. Five types of man. There'll be I'm, the playboy. The oh, uh, you're the so academic, good at this game. Yeah, yeah. The, go on. The, the 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 jock. The um. Oh. You're babe. You're nailing it. Uh, the intellectual. And the, uh, you said that, yeah. So you've had intellectual, playboy, sporty, jock, jock, kind of yeah. sporty. But there are two. There are uh, two more. You're doing so well. I don't know. I'm running out of steam. Lily. I'm going to go back <laughs> businessman like. Yes. Oh my god. You're type. I, <gasps> yeah. You've smashed it. You've smashed it. Okay. So actually, there in in total when I when I look at it now, there are actually eight because there is <laughs> the sportsman or outdoor type. And she has like four pages on how to lure them in, which I skipped through. Not for, not my type, not for me. Not, the you're shy- not interested. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. The shy conservative man. Quite sweet. Oh, right. Yeah. So that was the one you didn't get, but you got all the others. Then there's the far out intellectual, which basically is like, you know, men who want to sit around reading Keats and talking about pretentious yeah. stuff. Beat poets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. And then the successful executive. 
Um, and then, then she has the sophisticated man about town. But there are two subsections of that. There are subcategories of oh. the super sophisticated and then the hail, hail fellow well man. <laughs> the hail, hail fellow, fellow well, well man, well. otherwise known as the good time Charlie, which is basically like a big man slut that you're oh. never going to be able to pin down. So just avoid him <laughs> at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, the one who I most identify with. Anyway, no, 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 no. no. only joking, only joking. No. I was. That was my question, James. So, which out of those are you? Is would you? Would you? Do you most identify with? <laughs> they're quite harsh, the, I would the say. That, they're all quite harsh, but like uh, the intellectual one. But it just sounds like the intellectual one isn't going to. It doesn't sound a lot of fun, to be honest. Whether the bloody what was the last one referred to as? The hail fellow well met man. No, no, no. The one who's like the the, the shy concert man. No, you're not the shy. No, the last one you mentioned. The last one you mentioned. The Playboy type. Yeah, yeah, character. that's it. The hail fellow the hail, well met man, which is a like a good a good time. Well I don't. I mean, look, this was the sixties. I don't know, but good time, Charlie. Basically, let's go with good good time. You are Charlie. not a there good time, go. Charlie, though, because they're they're like oh, selfish. Mean, I'm, a, I'm a shy. Con I'm a shy. I'm a shy conservative then. No. I, <laughs> I, well, basically, I don't, I don't really think you fit into any of these. I, would I, say I, some, I don't think I fit into the binaries. Yeah. That's, it's what it me, to me speaks to is, is Edith Head basically only liking sporty men or, or successful executives because the others are all kind of dissed. I feel like those two are her yeah. type and then she's got um. no interest in the other. But then she also finishes up by going, there are also... Two other categories of man, but they'll be less likely to be interested in you. The hungry man, who'll only be interested in eating, and the drinking man, who'll be an alcoholic. This is amazing. This this is all sorts of amazing. This is like uh, I I, w I wasn't expecting this uh, this book to bear such riches. Um, I, I mean, I'm maybe a little bit on it. our social media can pop up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have one last question that I want to finish with. This is from the section on how to dress your family. Mm. So just to prepare you, James, if you ever decided to, you know, spawn your own, how should you prepare your children's wardrobe for starting school? How should you prepare it? Oh, by uh, by like defumigating it because they've probably got lice. <laughs> Sorry, that it wasn't a very well worded question. I mean, how do you decide what they're going to wear? Figure out their wardrobe style, style wise. You know, what are you picking out? Because remember, this is for American kids who don't have a uniform. Oh, right, right. You probably want to dress them like little adults or little suits and little, you know, just like, j j I guess. Um, <laughs> so the, I, I, I can't. I don't think you're going to get it, honestly. It was sort of a trick question because right. I just had to include this. So Edith Head's advice for figuring out what your kids should wear is to go to the school they will be attending, wander around the playground and observe what they're wearing. Officer, I was merely researching for my children's <laughs> uniforms. I'm a parent myself. I just wanted to figure <laughs> out what they should wear so they're in keeping with the other kids. You know, God forbid they stand out. Oh, it was a different time, Lily. <laughs> it was, it was such a different, a different time. time. A more innocent time, maybe. Literally. Can you imagine that where, ever where being in adults. a book now? It's an insane piece <laughs> of advice. Do you think... Do you think Edith ever had? I don't think she can't have had kids with advice like that, did she? I don't know. <laughs> That's such a good question. It didn't come up in my research, so I'm assuming no, she didn't, especially because she worked either. so much. And I feel like there would have been a strong chance she wouldn't have been employed if she had children, you know, as soon as she got yeah, pregnant. Yeah, I mean, maybe not, point, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, well, what, what a stunning piece of advice to end uh, this quiz on. I've not been keeping, I've not been keeping track of a score, but, uh, you know. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I didn't quite either, but I, I feel like you smashed it. I give you oh, three out of five, which is pretty great. I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you very much. Lily. You're prepared now to dress for success and get the man of your dreams. <laughs> All right. So shall we finish up the episode with another entry to the film pharmacy? Oh, yes. Let's. So we're doing a fashion pharmacy this week as opposed to a film. Well, it's still a film pharmacy. <laughs> Fashion film pharmacy. Yes, well, I, I thought, well, seeing as though we're discussing Edith Head, why don't we get a, a, a quandary from one of our listeners about uh, fashion? Yes. So I put out the call on Instagram for fashion-related queries that film pharmacy could help with. And one of our responses was, I got a bad haircut and now none of my clothes look cool. 
So James, do you have any <laughs> film advice that can help with this obviously very film-related question? God, right. So I feel like we're really stretching the uh, <laughs> the the concept, the format, the format exactly. Especially play, play, playing into my area of least expertise, uh, haircut and costumes. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to have a moment to ponder this query. Could I, could I turn the question back on yourself, Lily? Of course, of course. Well, it's it's actually <laughs> having thought that would be quite a fun one to answer. I realised that without knowing exactly what the new style looks like, it's quite hard to give any advice. My mm. my knee, my instant reaction is the late nineties or the nineties was like a fine, fine era for hair. From long to short, we had the, the full mm. range. Films these days, all women now have long flowing locks, which is lovely, but there isn't a lot of variation there. Whereas the nineties, I feel, was a real high watermark for all kinds of lengths. We've got Practical Magic, my one of my favorite films to represent the longer logs. Where you've got Demi Moore in Ghost, Winona Ryder in any of her films from her early twenties. So all of those films, I would recommend. <laughs> you can pick the one that fits most with the haircut that you've got, and then see what they're wearing. Would be my advice. Um, but then I also thought, in keeping with this whole fashion slash hair concept, I'd really recommend Vidal Sassoon's documentary. It's called Vidal Sassoon: The Movie. Um, it's all about the iconic hairstylist and hairdresser from the 60s, who's literally the creative mind behind all of the incredible haircuts from the 60s. And it's such a good, interesting documentary. So <laughs> that's my other shout out in this world. I mean, I mean, and, and as you were talking, I was just thinking, well, let's stay with 90s films. And, you know, if, if things get too much, maybe just go G.I. Jane and shave everything off. And then, you know, <laughs> just to style it out. Style it out. Yes, I love that. That's perfect. Yeah, it'll be very reassuring as well to know, like, well, I did go short, but I could go even shorter and still look amazing. Even shorter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, great. Well, that is it for another episode of Groovy Movies. If you enjoyed listening and you love what we do, please like and subscribe and write us a review. It really helps get our podcast out there and exposed to a new audience. So, yeah, we really appreciate any support you can give us. Yes. So we will see you next week for another episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Follow us on Instagram at Groovy Movies Pod or email us groovymoviespod at gmail.com. Groovy Movies was produced and edited by Lily Austin. Music and sound by James Brailsford. Our logo was designed by Abby Joe Sheldon. For references and more information about the films discussed, check out the show notes.